listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be back. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Ruben Moyana. I am uh, one of the elders here at Crosspoint. And uh, I am uh, privileged this morning to share the Word of God with you. Uh, let me begin by saying that the Bible is the very Word of God to us. Uh, so with humility uh, and with reverence, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you can, and follow along with me uh, to the book of Numbers chapter 21. Uh, Numbers chapter 21. Uh, as you know, I was in Africa for a couple of weeks, and uh, I want to tell you that the brothers uh, in Africa were sitting there uh, their greetings uh, to you. I, uh, I had a very good trip. It was very fruitful by the grace of God. Uh, training there at the tra- pastoral training center in Gulu, Uganda. And uh, the brothers and sisters in, in Uganda were, with, were really thankful uh, for you uh, for sending me there. And uh, also the, my, my family in Zimbabwe. I also got a chance to visit my, my mother and father uh, in Zimbabwe. And they were very uh, gr- grateful to see me as well. So uh, again, thank you for your prayers. So uh, today I decided to preach this text uh, from the book of Numbers, uh, which is really strange uh, because uh, I, I really hate snakes. Um, when, when, I was, uh, when I was a little boy, I was traumatized. Uh, you know, growing up in Africa, they were uh, these uh, black mambas, these, these, these poisonous snakes. And uh, at one point when I was young, I think I was maybe, I think five years or so, I was visiting uh, my grandfather in the rural areas and playing with a little boy. And uh, this poor boy got, got bitten right, right in front of my eyes um, uh, by a black mamba and he, and he really died uh, because there was, there was no hospital nearby uh, and there was no, 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 there was no medicine for him. And so that, that's why I'm afraid of snakes. Uh, my, my, my girls will tell you, even if I'm watching television, if I see a snake, I, I look away. Um, so, but uh, in, all, in all seriousness, uh, today we're going to, uh, to learn here uh, from this passage of Scripture. And I think the Lord has, uh, has much for us to learn from this passage of Scripture. So this is Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He said, from Mount Hall... They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses 
made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent beat anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Uh, this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you uh, this morning uh, just uh, with humility, God. We pray that you would teach us from your word, God. We pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would open our eyes. I pray that my flesh would get out of the way of what you have to say to us this morning and that I would be your mouthpiece as I speak. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, so the book of Numbers is uh, part of what is known as the Pentateuch. Uh, these are the five books uh, that were written by, by Moses. Uh, so Exodus, uh, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, these are books that were written by Moses. And uh, the genre is uh, narrative. And uh, Moses, really, we know that he was appointed by God to be the, the leader of the people of God. And uh, so when we read this account, I want us to, to, to put that in mind, that Moses was there. Like he was physically there. He saw what happened and he felt what happened in that moment. So in other words, we can, we can look at the book of Numbers and really the Pentateuch uh, almost as a diary or a log of what happened uh, to the people of Israel. It is a log and a diary that, that uh, tells us about the journey that they were on, uh, specifically from Sinai to Moab when they were uh, leaving Egypt, where they were captives, and they were going to the promised land. And so this is uh, what we need to make note of. And the message of Numbers really, if we think about it, it transcends uh, its historical and cultural setting. And again, it is much for us to, to learn even in 2022. So if I had to sum up like theologically, like the, in one statement, like one of the things to say about the book of Numbers, we can say that, uh, that God had actually brought a people to himself, these Israelites, by his covenant grace. And he expected from them obedience uh, he expected holiness. He expected uh, a wholehearted devotion from his people. But the problem, as we see in the text here, and the problem as we see when we study before and even after this, we see that human beings and God's people in general are often fickle. We are often fickle. We are often faithless. We often lack obedience. We often lack holiness. We often are not wholly devoted to God, even if we can profess to be the people of God. So the message of Numbers is really undeniably clear, if you think about it, that, that, that God, even though God's people, these Israelites, even though they were, they were fickle and faithless and without devotion to Him, that, that God Himself, God was faithful. He was faithful to His people his he had made a covenant with them, and uh, he had these expectations for, his, for these people, and he was faithful, even though the people were not faithful to him. So that's what we want uh, to look at this morning. So I have uh, three observations for us to make uh, in the text here. 
as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning. So the first uh, observation I want us to see here is that the greatest enemy of the, of the human soul is our human sinfulness. The greatest enemy of the human soul is our sinfulness. As we consider this account, we can't help but notice that the Israelites have a problem that has characterized humanity ever since the fall. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we see this problem, the universal problem of sin. The fundamental major problem of humanity is that we have rebelled and we have sinned against God. In fact, we have a sin nature. We are born in sin. Uh, this is what uh, Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology. I think I've put this uh, up before when I've preached. Uh, uh, this is what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology uh, concerning sin. He says, this, he says that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature. Let me say that again. Sin is any failure when we fail to conform to the moral law of God in the way we act, in our attitude, and in our nature. So, we know that the Israelites were not able, they were not able to follow the moral law of God. They were not able to do that, even though God had made it clear. He had demarcated in the law what they were supposed to do, but they were not able to do that. They knew the holy and the just character of God, but that did not prevent them from being sinful and rebellious against God. And uh, if we are fair, we know that everybody in human history, other than Jesus Christ, has not been ever able to conform to the moral law of God. So the first thing that I want us to notice as we look in this account here, in the text here, I want you to notice in verse 6 and in verse 7 and in verse 8, uh, there's reference to the Lord. So it says there in verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. You see the capital letter L-O-R-D. And then it says again in uh, verse 7, uh, it says, for we have sinned against the Lord, uh, that's capital letter L-O-R-D, and again pray to the Lord, capital letter L-O-R-D, and then same thing in verse 8, and the Lord say to Moses. So I want you to notice that when you see that in the ESV particularly, uh, this is referring to Yahweh. This is God, this is the personal name of God, this is the name uh, of, the, of the covenant God. And when we talk about a covenant, again, we're referring to God's commitment to a people. Like God was committed to his people. And he had these requirements that he had for his people. And these requirements were really uh, shown in his promises, uh, in his laws, uh, in his judgment, uh, in his faithfulness, and in his mercy. So again, because of, of his covenant with the Israelites, Yahweh, God, had these demands. He demanded, again, obedience from them, holiness, and a wholehearted devotion from his people. But again, as we see over and over again, they, they often failed and sinned against God in these areas. So let me add that again. We, we, ha we also have a tendency to, to sin against God. So the Israelites, they are, they, are, they are on their way. They are walking in the desert. And as all mankind... You know, when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we are lonely, when we are tired, when we are depressed, we have a tendency to 
be sinful. It is much more easier to fall into sin when we are that. So I want us to look at some of the ways here in which the, the Israelites had sinned against God and just also point out some of the ways the Israelites uh, were sinning against God. Uh, so the first thing that I want us to notice, in general, the Israelites were sinning against God by their lack of obedience. Uh, by their lack of obedience. So, so God expected obedience from His people, but they often failed. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 says this, says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them, that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. So you see, see God really required obedience uh, out of His people. And then secondly, we see that God also required holiness out of His people. And we see that they sinned by lacking holiness. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2 uh, shows us how God required holiness out of His people. He's, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2, For you are a people holy, holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be different than everybody else. Just as God's people in all generations are supposed to be set apart and different from everybody else. So we see the lack of obedience. We see the lack of holiness. And then we see the lack of devotion. The lack of devotion. Again, these people were in a covenant with God. They were to be committed to God. Yahweh expected a wholehearted devotion from, he, from His people. But again, they failed. They often failed like we often fail. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all His ways. To love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So this is, this is a wholehearted devotion that was required by God from His people. But instead of the people being obedient, and instead of the people being holy, and instead of the people being devoted to God, again we see them falling into temptation and sin over and over again. Look in verse 4 again here. It says, The people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So you see there the anger. And the sin, really, the sin here is the sin of impatience with God and His servant Moses. They are speaking these harsh, disrespectful words towards God and His servant. 
And so we see the sin of impatience here. And, and to be impatient means uh, they, were, they were having and lacking patience, obviously. And they were really not tolerant of God. They were restless. They were short-tempered. The Israelites did not have any, any patience or tolerance with God and His servant Moses. So to be patient, according to the Merriam-Webster uh, Collegiate uh, Thesaurus and Dictionary, uh, it, it has an element really of lacking the power to endure hardship, distress, and opposition. So in other words, when, when hardship comes your way, when distress comes your way, just as these people were so tired of walking in the desert, they lacked the power to endure it and they cave in and they gave in. And this is what had happened to them. So the Israelites were impatient with God and they were impatient with Moses. They were not enduring. They were not forbearing. They were not tolerant. They were not self-controlled. When we are impatient, when we, when, we, when we are impatient, really, if you think about it, we are inadvertently saying that my way is better than your way. So they were in a way saying, hurry on, God, hurry on, my way is better than your way. So this is what we see here. The Israelites were thinking that their finite, sin-infested minds were better than the infinite, unsearchable ways of God. And my dear friends, when we take a closer look at ourselves, when we look at our lives, we see the same sin is not far from us. My dear friends, have you ever been so angry? Have you ever been so harsh? Have you ever been so impatient with God? Have you ever been so impatient with other people? Have you ever been impatient with your wife, with your husband, with your family, with your friends, with your pastors, with strangers? So we see here the way, the way of the sinful people, that they were, they were impatient with Moses. They were impatient with God. May God help us to be a people who are patient. May God help us to be a people who are not unrighteously demanding and harsh. As the Israelites, we see here, they are being unrighteously demanding and harsh and impatient. But not, not only are they guilty of the sin of impatience, but we also see that they sinned by speaking against God. They sinned by speaking against God, which is really blasphemy. God's people were supposed to have an adoration towards God. God's people were supposed to have a veneration, worship, a reverence to a holy God. They were supposed to express this worship and this reverence in the way in which they spoke to God and the way in which they spoke about God. God's people were supposed to speak in favor of God, in support of God and His ways. But here in the text, we hear that they became impatient and they spoke against God and His servant Moses. So instead of speaking for God and in support of God, they were directly opposing. These are God's people, and they're, and they're, and they're opposing. And they were standing against God. This is, this is utter foolishness. 
To speak against God in these ways is utter foolishness. And my dear friends, we live in a culture now that is increasingly becoming more hostile and against the ways of God. And we must be careful that we do not give in and align with whatever speaks against God. I was reading an article this morning about a man who was giving a convocation speech at a high school, and he mentioned in his, in his high school, in this high school uh, commencement speech, he was, say, he was talking to the children, and he said, I hope you'll find good spouses, I hope, and he defined marriage as between a man and a woman, which, what, which is what God says. And he's under attack by the media now because of him saying that marriage is between a man and a woman is, is what is in the Bible. They spoke against God and against Moses. We can speak against God in many different ways. Again, the sinful culture stands for things and principles that's, that speak against God. And may we be known as a people who speak for the things of God and the ways of God and not just against the ways of of God, because this is, uh, this, is, this is what our culture would want us to do. So again, my dear friends, it, it, is, it is blasphemy. It is blasphemy when we oppose God in these ways. The text again says, the people spoke against God. How can humanity do that? How can we be so foolish to think that we know better than the one who's omniscient? the one who's all-knowing, the one who knows ultimately what is right and what is wrong. They spoke against God, against his servant Moses. So in our text again, the Israelites, they sinned by being impatient, by speaking against God. And they had this, this disrespect towards the holy God. So may this not be said of us, but then we also see the Israelites sinned by being liars. Uh, number three here. So they, they, had, they were lacking obedience. They were lacking holiness. They were lacking devotion. They were impatient. They were speaking against God. And then we see that they were lying. They were lying. So, so to lie uh, means to be untruthful, either directly or indirectly. Uh, to lie is to misrepresent what is true. In other words, lying means to distort and to exaggerate and to misstate the truth. And we see the, the Israelites are, are doing that right here. Uh, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Really? Really? God had not brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. As this sarcastic question implies, that was not the purpose of God, even though that ends up happening really for many of them, as we see here, is judgment against them. So Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 uh, shows us really the purpose of why. Why had God brought them out of Egypt? This is what he said when God was promising deliverance to his people. So Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you from under the burdens of Egypt. You see the Lord there, capital letter L-O-R-D. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm 
with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So, so God had, had, had brought them out of Egypt with a bigger plan, with a, with a, with a, with a bigger purpose. His plan was that he wanted to deliver them from the burden and the yoke of slavery. He was making it known that these were his people, that they were set apart, that they would be his people, that he would be their God, that he was going to bring them to the promised land. But the people, and, and the people knew this. They knew this. They knew the purposes of God, and yet they sarcastically and untruthfully say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And then they lied also. I mean, you look, you look in there, it says, for there is no food and no water, we load this worthless food. I mean, they just did not like the manna. I guess they were tired of making manna hamburgers, manna, manna cheeseburgers, manna. That, 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 that's what they had, but that, that was the provision of God. So it, it was a lie really to say that they did not have any food. It was a foolish lie. In the same sentence here, they're saying that there is no food and water, and then they say, we hate this food. How can you hate something that's not there? This is an irrational statement. And that's what sin does. Sin makes you say and do irrational things. And you end up believing and embracing irrational things. And you reject what is really true. So we see here again the sin of lying. The sin of lying. And then we also see that they sinned against God by belittling and disregarding the provision of God. They disregarded and belittled God's provision. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we love this worthless food. So, so God had been so kind. He had been so kind to provide freedom. He gave them freedom from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out of Egypt and they disregarded and they belittled that. And God had been so kind to give them water, miraculously water and manna from heaven, this food from heaven to his covenant people. But they disregarded that and they belittled his provision. And the manna is what they're calling here, this worthless food. Can you imagine can you imagine God making provision for you, giving you something, and you say, this is worthless? Everything that God has ever given to us should never be labeled as worthless, but as being worthy. Everything that has been given to us by God has great, great value. Everything that has ever been given to us by God is valuable and precious. And it is easy for us to be the same way as the Israelites. So my dear friends, remember that. That everything that we have 
has everything has come from the hand of God himself in his sovereignty, and we should never disregard and belittle it. So if we can be truly honest, again, if we can be honest, the sins of the people of Israel are very characteristic of the sins in our own lives and in our own hearts, isn't it? We too, we often fail to obey God. We often don't pursue holiness. We are often devoted to other things and not fully devoted to God. We are often impatient. We often speak against God and His ways. We are often guilty of blasphemy. We are often casual of lying. And we disregard and belittle the provision of God. And we sin in so many other ways, if we can be honest, the list is really, really long. And because of this sin, apart from God's intervention, we stand condemned under the wrath and the judgment of God. The greatest enemy of the human soul is our sinfulness. And then secondly, because of this sin, there is this inescapable judgment. We can't escape the judgment of God apart from the mercy and the provision of God himself. We can't escape the judgment of God apart from the mercy and the provision of God himself. So in the text here, we see the judgment of God. These fiery serpents. God sent these poisonous fiery serpents as judgment against his sinful people. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. These serpents, these serpents, these snakes, they were so venomous that they caused so much of fiery inflammation and pain and eventually led to death. In other words, this was a horrible, horrible, agonizing way to die. And as a person who hates snakes, I, I sweat if I think about it. This is my worst nightmare. But this was the judgment of God. This was a picture of the wrath of God against sin. Now sometimes when we hear about the judgment of God, we are often offended. And we may even begin to question and to judge God ourselves and say statements like, why would God, why would God cause people to suffer this way? Like, why would he do that? But we must remember that God's judgment is always certain and God's judgment is always righteous. This is Psalm chapter 7, verse 8, 11. Psalm 7, 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a, God, and a God who feels indignation every day. He is a righteous judge. And then Psalm chapter 9, verse 7 to 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with what? With, up, with righteousness. And He judges the people with uprightness. So he judges the world with righteousness and he judges the peoples with uprightness. So, so God's judgment, 
His judgment is a function of His justice and His righteousness. So let's remember that God, God really, if we are trying to judge God, we must remember that God is more morally righteous and He is more just and He is more fair than all of us in this room put together. God's commands and judgments, we must also remember, they meet the perfect standards of justice and fairness. So when He punishes us and when He rewards His people, He does it in a way that is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. In other words, God's justice, we can say, is impartial and fair. So it was, it was perfectly just and right for God to send these fiery serpents as judgment on the sinful Israelites, as hard as it can be for us to understand. Because of human sinful nature, and because of the perfect justice of God, the only hope for, you, for, the, for the people, the only hope for them, was for a mediator to stand between the sinful people here and the holy, righteous, just God. They had to be a mediator. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So we see the need for an intercessor here. We, we see the need for a mediator. We are, we are a sinful people, and that's why we need God and, and His plan of salvation and His redemption. So again, to recap, the greatest enemy of our, of our human soul is our sinfulness. And the reason why that is so, it is because our sinfulness draws the righteous judgment and the wrath of God, which we cannot bear. No one is able to bear the wrath of God. So, number three, the only hope for the devastation of sin. The only hope for the devastation of sin is God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation, again, like I've said, requires an intercessor. God's plan of salvation requires a mediator. And Moses was an intercessor. And Moses here was the mediator. We, we know that actually Moses played different major roles in the history of Israel. And uh, if you think about it, many of the roles that Moses played, they actually found their fulfillment and perfection in Jesus Christ. For example, we know that Moses was a teacher. Uh, he was a servant of the Lord. Uh, he was a prophet. He was a deliverer. He was a judge. He was a writer. He was a shepherd. He was a friend of God. He was a mediator of the law and the covenant. But here specifically we see that Moses was an intercessor or a mediator. Again, these roles, all the roles that Moses played, they found their fulfillment and their perfection in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate intercessor. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate mediator. This is 1 Timothy 2.5. It's not on the screen, but I'm going to read it. It says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And without an intercessor, the people would have, what? They would have perished. Verse 8, 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the text says here that many people died. Many people died. The bite of the serpent was deadly. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And nothing could, could save the people but doing what the Lord had commanded them, commanded them to do through his servant Moses. I mean, think about it. There was no antivenom they could have taken. There was no medicine they could have taken. There was, there was no hospital nearby. There was no doctor in the camp. They had to look at the pole. They had to look at the fire at the, at the pole with the bronze serpent that Moses had made in order for them to live. I mean, God, if you think about it, God can do anything, right? God could have immediately removed the serpents just like that. He could have taken the poison out of their bloodstream just like that. But he didn't. So what is the significance? What, what is the significance? Again, this event, if we think about it, it typifies the sacrifice of Christ and the faith of His people. It typifies the sacrifice of Christ and the faith of His people. Now, we're talking about types. And when you talk about type, uh, this is uh, what theologians talk about, these types. So a type, T-Y-P-E, in case you're wondering with my accent what I'm saying, is an Old Testament institution person, place, event that's regarded as anticipating the person in the work of Jesus Christ or some aspect of the Christian faith and life. In other words, there are many things that we see in the Old Testament that point to what's going to happen in the New Testament. And this is what we see in this account. So just as the bronze, just as the bronze representation of the poisonous serpent is lifted up, so Jesus Christ, as one who is born in the likeness of sinful flesh, will be also lifted up. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin. For sin, He condemned sin. Listen to what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 3, verse 14. This is Jesus' commentary on this passage. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So the afflicted Israelites had no other means to rescue them than to look at the bronze serpent. Just as sinners have no hope, we have no hope for salvation except having faith in the crucified Christ. So again, why, why would Moses, think about it. I want us to think about this for a second. Why would Moses make a model of a serpent? The very creature that was going, that was causing the people to die. Well, because on the cross, remember, on the cross, we are told that Jesus Christ would become sin for us. The very thing which brings spiritual death. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that, For our, sa our sake he made, he made him to be what? 
to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then another verse that helps us here is Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he redeemed us from what? A curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Moses, I want us to think about this. Moses did not hide the serpent. He did not hide it. But he, he lifted it up on a pole and put it on a pole where everybody could see it. And the same thing with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was publicly, publicly crucified outside the city of Jerusalem up on Calvary Hill. And those who hear the gospel can also look to him and be saved. We can look to the cross and also be saved. So most of us, we know John 3.16. John 3.16 is a continuation of John 3.14, which talks about Moses being lifted up by the serpent. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. So if you're here this morning, if you are in this room, if you are not saved, let me remind you that the Bible says that you stand condemned already. This is John 3.18. It's like you have the poison of sin and death already. And your only hope is to look up to the cross. Confess your sin. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Jesus and what He has done for you. He is your intercessor and He is your mediator. In the New King James Version of the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, it says, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look, 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 look to me and be saved and, and, and all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So will you look today, if you are not a Christian, will you look to Christ? Will you look to Jesus? Charles Spurgeon, I'm sure you've never heard his name in this church. Charles Spurgeon is regarded by many people uh, to be one of the greatest preachers of the 1800s. And I want you to listen, listen to how Spurgeon got saved in, on 6 January in 1850. Actually, Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 played a significant role in saving Charles Spurgeon. I want you to listen. Listen to this. He says, I sometimes think that I have been in darkness. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. 
in that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a, a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year, which was a lot of money then, to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on a cross. Look. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am seated at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin about 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me in the gallery and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> me saying that? Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life. Miserable in death. If you do not obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. That moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ. May that be someone's testimony today. So are you in darkness like Spurgeon was at age 15? Are you in despair like Spurgeon was? Are you miserable? Our hope is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. The ESV says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. 
The uplifted serpent was the only cure, if you think about it, for the Israelites in the camp, just as Jesus is the only Savior of the world. And notice something. Nobody could look at the bronze serpent for another person. Each person who was dying in the camp had to look for himself or herself in order for them to be saved. So the salvation that Jesus Christ offers, ladies and gentlemen, is a personal and individual salvation. Each of us must look to Christ by faith to find salvation. And we must tell and encourage other people who are perishing to look to, look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who was lifted up on a tree. God, we thank you for the hope that we have, Father, that apart from you, there was no hope for us. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here right now who does not know you, that they would look up to you, God. That they would look up to the cross. That they would look up to the cross. Because this is our only hope, God. By your grace, through faith in Christ alone, we are saved. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.